So here we are, 24 episodes into our study of the year 1919. Hours and hours of content. And there is still so much I haven't had a chance to tell you. Western fashion, for one thing, was undergoing a revolution. Since the Middle Ages, women had worn clothing that reached at least to the ankle, if not to the floor. Hemlines rose and fell by a matter of half inches. Then in 1919, skirts began to creep up to dizzying new heights. That year, fashion designers unveiled skirts that hit at mid-half. By 1927, the clothing of the most adventurous women stopped above the knee and were sometimes slit even higher. This appalled more conservative members of society who believed that civilization would be undone by such flagrant displays of shin bones. So alarmed was the justice system of the state of New York that in the spring of 1919, carpenters arrived at the state courthouse on Foley Square in Manhattan armed with boards and nails. They built enclosed railings three feet high around witness stands. These new witness boxes allowed female witnesses to testify without any risk of the court getting a glimpse of stockings and stopping women from perverting the course of justice with their sexy, sexy ankles. This is the year that was, 1919. I also haven't told you about women's hair, which was changing length as rapidly as hemlines. Before 1919, a woman cutting her hair short was a drastic decision, usually taken under duress. Think of all the books for and about young women in the 19th century in which a female cutting her hair is a dramatic plot point. In Little Women, Joe cuts off her long, chestnut-colored hair and sells it to a wig maker to obtain money to help her sick father. Mary, in the Little House books, has her hair cut short when she suffers from scarlet fever. This was common during illness. It was believed that short hair helped relieve fevers. In all of these cases, short hair signaled that something had gone very, very wrong. By the end of 1919, short hair signaled something very different, that the woman in question was progressive, modern, and refused to comply with old-fashioned notions of propriety. One of the first and most famous bobbed heads was that of dancer and actress Irene Castle, who cut off her long hair prior to entering the hospital for an appendectomy in 1915. She liked it so much she kept it short after her recovery. She was imitated by women who took up jobs during the war and who had little patience for the time commitment required to style long hair. After the war, the trend spread. Women claimed bobbed hair cost less to maintain since women no longer needed all of the pins and accoutrements to keep updos up, and for women wealthy enough to afford them in the first place, created less work for ladies' maids. Think of Anna in Downton Abbey, who has to stand there for hours pinning and curling Lady Mary's hair while Lady Mary frets over her love life. Critics replied that bobbed hair was actually more expensive since bobs required frequent trips to the hairdresser. 
incidentally, the bob utterly disrupted the hairstyling and cutting industry. Women's hair salons had little experience actually cutting hair and often turned away girls looking for bobs. Frustrated women sometimes betook themselves to barber shops, a trend that discombobulated, get it, discombobulated, barbers and male patrons alike. Anyway, the Spanish flu pandemic played a role in the short hair trend. Many women cut their hair when they fell ill. Like Irene Castle, they never went back. Doctors approved and wrote editorials applauding the hygienic advantages of shorter hair. One article that I found declared, quote, less hair carried on the head is a reduction of infection-carrying medium. The backlash really got going a few years later, and so the most hysterical reactions to bobbed hair date to later in the 1920s. In 1919, short hair was so new and so concentrated in East Coast cities in general, and Greenwich Village in particular, that critics in the heartland mostly ignored it. However, I did find one male critic who had written a letter to the editor declaring that for a woman to bob her hair was to give at least tacit approval to the Bolshevik cause, since he claimed the Russian government had forced the style on, quote, the lowest type of Russian woman. He concluded that as a single man, he would never marry a woman with bobbed hair. No word on the question of whether or not any of these short-haired women wanted to marry him. What else haven't I told you? So many things. And I'm devoting this time to sharing some of my favorite stories that I couldn't fit in anywhere else. For example, I haven't told you about the first transatlantic airplane flight. You may think you already know about this and credit Charles Lindbergh for the achievement. In fact, Lindbergh completed the first solo nonstop flight across the Atlantic Ocean in 1927. In 1919, the battle was on for a nonstop flight by a team of aviators. Both a pilot and a navigator were necessary for the feat. So on June 14th, Lieutenant Arthur Brown, navigator, and Captain John Alcock, pilot, embarked on an expedition from St. John's, Newfoundland, headed for Ireland and glory. The men were aiming for a prize offered by the London Daily Mail of 10,000 pounds, roughly $50,000, to the first aviators to complete the journey. Alcock had been flying for just about as long as anyone who wasn't a Wright brother. He had won his first aviation competition in 1913, achieving a record speed from London to Manchester. During the war, he was stationed in the Aegean Sea and ran bombing raids against the Ottoman Empire. In October 1917, Alcock lost an engine and was forced to ditch in the Sea of Marmara. He was captured by the Ottomans and remained a prisoner of war until the signing of the armistice. After the war, he found an able partner in the navigator Brown. While born in America, Arthur Brown had been raised in Manchester, he served in the trenches at Ypres and the Somme, then enlisted in the Royal Flying Corps. He, too, went down behind enemy lines and spent 14 months in a German POW camp. The two men met soon after each returned to England. Five teams were competing for the Daily Mail contest that summer, and they were all working out of Newfoundland. The first team took off on May 18th 
promptly flew into dense fog over the Grand Banks, ran out of fuel, and crash-landed not halfway across the Atlantic. Thankfully, they were rescued by a small cargo vessel and made it home. The second team took off a few days later and crashed on takeoff. Flying was risky business in 1919. Alcock and Brown were flying a new aircraft, a modified Vickers Vimy 4 bomber with two 350-horsepower Rolls-Royce engines. The plane had been designed for long-distance flights with the goal of bombing Berlin, but the war had ended before it could be used. Alcock and Brown had stripped out the bombing apparatus installed extra gasoline tanks that could be jettisoned after use. The team took off at 4 p.m. on June 14th. They carried 807 gallons of gasoline, a dozen sandwiches, numerous chocolate bars, two thermoses of coffee, a flask of brandy, and inexplicably two black cats named Lucky Jim and Twinkletoe. They were considered the mascots of the flight. Actually, the whole thing about the cats is very confusing. One account that I read clearly described them as real cats and said they spent the flight in an enclosed cupboard nestled in some warm material. But the flight was going to take hours. Cats have to do their business, and it gets very, very cold up in the sky. Another account claimed the cats were, in fact, stuffed animals, which is less charming but far more practical. I could have pursued the matter, and I have gone down extended research rabbit holes for less. When I wrote my first book, I spent hours trying to determine if Edouard Manet had had his left leg or his right leg amputated and never did learn the answer. I decided in this case to let it go. There were two cats on the flight, and like Schrodinger's, they were either living or dead. Anyway, the men wore electrically heated suits. Since I said it, it gets very cold up that high. They took off against a strong wind across a bumpy field, and the overloaded aircraft barely cleared the treetops at the end of the makeshift runway. Things went wrong almost immediately. The radio gear in their flight cabs failed right away, and the men had to scribble notes to one another to communicate. They soon hit a thick fog that made it impossible for Brown to determine their position accurately. The only tools Brown had available for navigation would have been familiar to a ship captain in the 1850s. Maps, a watch, a compass, and a sextant, which only works when the user has a clear view of the horizon. Brown couldn't see the horizon in the fog, so he used a method called dead reckoning to calculate their position through a combination of compass bearings and calculations of the speed and height of the plane and the wind velocity. Brown was an excellent navigator, but dead reckoning is notoriously unreliable, and the two men knew that well. For hours, they flew in a haze of nothingness, the only indication they were heading in the right direction, Brown's compass and their own confidence. As I said, flying was risky business and a punishing amount of work. Alcott had to keep his feet on the rudders and his hand on the joystick for the entire flight. About 3 a.m., so 11 hours into the journey, the fog suddenly grew so thick that Alcott could no longer see the front of the fuselage or the end of either wing. With no external clues, his internal sense of his position in space went askew. 
in a state of complete disorientation, with his senses telling him one thing and his instruments something totally different. He lost control, and the plane went into a spiral dive. They plummeted toward the North Sea. Then, just as suddenly, the plane emerged out of the cloud, and the men could see their position no more than a hundred feet above the ocean. Alcott yanked the joystick, and the plane leveled out 50 feet above the water. Brown recalculated their position, realized that they were, at that moment, headed back toward America. They corrected course and kept going. In the hours that followed, they hit more clouds than a snowstorm. They were only able to confirm their position every few hours when they briefly encountered a patch of clear sky. At 8.15 in the morning of June 15th, they spotted land in the distance. And at 8.40, they landed near Clifton in County Galway and then sank propeller first into a bog. Well, it was Ireland. Alcock and Brown scrambled out, grabbed their instruments and a flare gun. I can only assume that if the cats in question were in fact real cats and not stuffed animals, they also saved Twinkletoe and Lucky Jim because these men weren't monsters. A few minutes later, a group of bewildered Irishmen converged on the spot. They asked the aviators where they had come from. America, said Alcock, and the whole group burst into laughter. It took some time to convince the men that I had really, truly just flown from America to Europe. They had traveled 1,890 miles, or 3,040 kilometers, in 15 hours and 57 minutes. Their average speed was 115 miles per hour. There is a photo, a poor quality, extremely blurry photo of the plane, nose down in a peat bog, surrounded by a dozen or so Irishmen in soft caps and coats, and accompanied by a few dogs. Before the plane stand the two aviators in their military hats and long, dark coats. It is impossible to see the expressions on their faces. The men would be surprised in the coming days by all of the press attention. At the moment, I can imagine they were somewhere between exhaustion and exhilaration, but surely incredibly proud. No cats, living or otherwise, are visible. What else? What else? We talked in more than one episode about the struggles of African Americans in 1919. One other story from that fight is the tale of Mabel Emmeline Puffer and Arthur Garfield Hazard. Miss Puffer was an educated white lady from a good family of moderate wealth long established in New England. She had graduated from the Emerson College of Oratory in Boston, then returned home to Ayer, Massachusetts to live with her family. She had never married, had no siblings, and was the sole heir of her father's multiple properties and sizable bank account. In 1919, she was 49 years old, her parents were dead, and she spent most of her time living in relative seclusion at the family country house outside of Ayer in a lakeside community named Sandy Pond. There was nothing weird or gossip-worthy about her seclusion. She just kept herself to herself. The Sandy Pond Estate employed a man who went by the nickname Honey Hazard. He was African-American, about 11 years younger than Mabel. His family had lived in the community for several generations, and his father, William W. Hazard, had fought in the famed Civil War B Troop, 5th Massachusetts Cavalry, one of the North's all-Black regiments. 
Honey Hazard was a respected man in the community and had a reputation as a hard worker and a skilled craftsman. He maintained the home and grounds of the Puffer Estates. At some point, Honey and Mabel fell in love. We don't know much about the timing of this relationship or how it progressed, but Honey later recalled nighttime walks around Sandy Pond when the moon was full. The two would hold hands and talk or just be silent together. It sounds very sweet. In 1919, the couple decided they would make it official. Mabel had always wanted to be married in June, so they planned a June wedding in Concord, New Hampshire. Mabel was a devoted practitioner of Christian science, and Concord was where the founder of the religion, Mary Baker Eddy, was buried. Now, there was no law in New Hampshire, or for that matter, in Massachusetts, that barred interracial marriage. New Hampshire did, however, mandate a five-day delay between requesting a marriage license and holding the wedding. On June 16th, the couple arrived in Concord and took two separate rooms, naturally, at the Phoenix Hotel. They requested a marriage license and planned to spend the next five days relaxing and enjoying themselves while they waited for the wedding. Those five days would ruin their lives. It's hard to know what Puffer and Hazard were thinking. Puffer must have known that she, as a wealthy woman, was violating numerous social norms by marrying her younger handyman. Eyebrows would be raised, and she would no doubt be ostracized from Sandy Pond society. She might have figured that she lived a private life anyway, and with Honey by her side, the disdain of her neighbors wouldn't matter. But how could the couple ignore the potential ramifications of a wealthy white woman marrying her younger black handyman? It's true that New England prided itself on its progressive race relations and on being nothing like the South. Many African-American families lived in peace alongside their white neighbors in the Northeast, and lynchings were unheard of. But that doesn't mean that blacks and whites socialized or, God forbid, married. But Puffer and Hazard seemed to think they could brazen it out. The week began well enough. The couple strolled the streets and shopped in local stores. They were noticed and widely discussed, but not shunned. It wasn't until Thursday, two days before the wedding, that the storm clouds began to gather. Someone in Concord had gotten in touch with the newspapers in Boston, and several reporters showed up and interviewed the couple. Early news coverage reflected perturbation more than outrage, and the reporters were willing to let the couple tell their story. Mabel told the Boston Evening Globe, I love Mr. Hazard, and love doesn't stop at the color line. News had also gotten back to Concord, and old friends were definitely outraged. Some were so upset, they hurried to Concord to urge Mabel to stop this nonsense. Their issues seemed to have been more about class than race. Miss Puffer couldn't marry her handyman. It was beneath her. Mabel politely told them to mind their own business. However, by Friday, the day before the planned wedding, the people of Concord were getting nervous about their town's sudden infamy. The mayor suddenly had to go out of town the day of the wedding. The city clerk asked to perform the ceremony, declined the offer. No one else in the local government was ready to step in. Hazard knocked on the door of every parsonage in town 
asking for help and was refused. Then Friday afternoon, Puffer's relatives showed up and all hell broke loose. These were the children of Puffer's half-sister. And Puffer repeatedly informed everyone within your shop that she had no contact with these people. She hadn't seen them in years. And their relationship was next to non-existent. The half-niece and half-nephew were not primarily concerned about class, but were definitely 100% horrified at the idea of suddenly acquiring a black uncle. If they were also concerned about other facts, they did not mention it, although it occurs to me that they might have been upset that their wealthy aunt was likely to favor her husband in her will over the relations that she didn't even like. It was not easy to find a legal reason to block a properly issued marriage license, but Puffer's relatives found one. They filed an application to declare Mabel Puffer mentally incompetent. On what grounds was this well-educated, well-read woman, who had managed her own affairs successfully in the decade or so since her father's death, mentally ill? She was insane, self-evidently, because she wanted to marry a, quote, Negro servant, unquote. Just let that sink in. Late afternoon before the wedding, they had finally found someone who was willing to marry them. The Ayer, Massachusetts police chief arrived without extradition papers, who lets legal quibbles get in the way in a time like this, and arrested Hazard for, quote, lewd and lascivious cohabitation, unquote, because who knows what they were doing at that house in Sandy Point. He also took Puffer into custody, relying on hastily issued committal papers. The next morning, instead of marrying her true love, Puffer met with her attorney in the basement of the Ayer City Hall. I wish I could tell you that she fought for love and won, married Honey, and lived with him in peace and harmony. Instead, matters became increasingly confusing as the behavior of Mabel Puffer became odd. I'm not going to go into the details because they are very hard to follow. The whole thing got dragged into the courts and Puffer just stopped making sense. At one point, she announced under oath that her putative fiancé was somehow both a black man named Hazard and a white man named Charles McKee at the same time. It's impossible to know what was going on had the strain actually broken her mind and driven Puffer insane? Or was she pretending to be insane like a ill-judged Latter-day Hamlet? Was she trying to protect Hazard and somehow, through fair means and foul, squirm out of the trap in which she found herself? No one knows. All charges against Hazard were eventually dropped, but Puffer was committed to a mental hospital. She died there in 1937. For many years, Hazard continued to live in air. He disappears from the record shortly after the U.S. enters World War II. Let us focus again on the key fact in this case. The justice system of Massachusetts declared Mabel Puffer insane solely because she wanted to marry a man of a different race. Lynchings and mob violence were terrifying crimes that spilled the blood of hundreds of African Americans in 1919. But let us also remember Mabel and Honey, who simply wanted to walk hand in hand around Sandy Pond in the daylight.
another marginalized group deserves attention, and their story echoes the experience of African Americans. You'll recall that African Americans returned from their service in World War I with a new sense of pride and accomplishment. Similarly, Native Americans who fought in the Great War felt they had courageously answered the call of a nation that was more likely to oppress than honor them. More than 12,000 American Indians served in the war, most of them volunteers. They were used primarily as scouts and snipers. Some were also employed as code talkers, a little-known fact. Many of us are familiar with the code talkers of World War II, and I had no idea a similar strategy was employed in the previous war. But during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in the autumn of 1918, American commanders were struggling to communicate with troops on the front line since the Germans were so good at tapping their telephone lines. One night in camp, two Choctaw soldiers were chatting by a fire when a captain walked by and heard them. He asked what language they were speaking and instantly realized the potential for secure communications. The Choctaw soldiers knew another tribal member based at company headquarters, and soon orders and information were flying back and forth in complete security. The Germans were utterly baffled by a language that few Americans, let alone any Europeans, even knew existed. The 19 soldiers who served as code talkers were fully aware of the irony of the situation. As they were using their language to help win the war for America, their language was being stomped out at home by the American government. This was the era of state-run boarding schools when Native American children were ripped from their families and forced to assimilate under stern Western eyes. Children who attempted to speak their native languages were often beaten. When Indian soldiers returned home after the war, they hoped that the government would recognize their service by granting them and their tribes citizenship. Here's another little-known fact, and one of far greater proportions. Most Native Americans were not U.S. citizens in 1919. A patchwork of laws governed indigenous citizenship, and some tribes and tribal members had it, while many others didn't. This is one story with a semi-happy ending. In 1924, Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act, conferring citizenship on all Native Americans born within the United States. It wasn't all sunshine and flowers because the law did not include the right to vote. Many states continued to ban or limit voting by American Indians until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. But one milestone, at least, had been achieved. Let's look outside of the United States for other stories we missed. I had originally intended to devote an entire episode to the Mexican Revolution, but I could never really get my arms around the topic. This period of Mexican history is complex and confusing and overwhelming and deserving of far more attention from those of us north of the border. What I will tell you is a single snippet from the much broader story and it's a story about Emiliano Zapata. Zapata was born in Morelos, a landlocked state in central Mexico, south of Mexico City, with its capital at Cuernavaca. The central political conflict in Morelos was the abusive behavior of the hacendados. These were the wealthy landowners who owned the haciendas that controlled most of the land. 
Haciendas were large estates that forced locals to work for them under dire conditions by trapping them into debt peonage, a form of coerced labor similar to sharecropping, but much, much worse. The system bore strong resemblance to slavery in the antebellum South or serfdom in early 19th century Russia. In Morelos, the haciendas existed alongside farms operated by the residents of small villages. Often these villages had rights, sometimes granted centuries previously, that accorded them land and access to water and other resources. But the haciendas didn't respect these rights and often seized land belonging to the villages. It appeared to many in Morelos that the hacendados would not be satisfied until they had taken all of the land and driven all of the farmers into peonage. Many villages began agitating for justice. In 1909, one such village elected as its representative Emiliano Zapata. Zapata was then 30 years old. While not handsome per se, photos reveal an arresting intensity in his gaze, and he had a magnificent mustache. His family wasn't rich, but they were comfortably established. Zapata had an entrepreneurial streak, and he ran a team of mules hauling supplies from village to village. He operated a small farm and grew watermelons. He was a skilled horseman who competed in rodeos and races, and he often dressed as a charro, a traditional Mexican horseman in tight black pants with silver buttons running down the side of each leg, a fine linen shirt, a silk scarf or ascot, and a short jacket, usually heavily embroidered. Women found him irresistible and men inspirational. He was a man accustomed to violence and comfortable employing it. He rarely traveled outside his home state and really had little interest in other parts of the country and zero respect for the middle and upper classes who lived in fine houses and ate fine foods in Mexico City. Zapata's greatest virtue was that he understood the suffering of the ordinary people of Morelos. Zapata knew the lives of his neighbors would be ground out in endless toil on the edge of ruin. He was not an ideological person. He would eventually be introduced to socialism and communism and anarchism, and he had no use for any of them. But fundamentally, he believed that government should be a force for good, not evil. The state should grant its citizens a measure of justice and human dignity rather than connive with the rich and powerful. As a farmer from a farming culture, he believed equality would best be achieved by ensuring everyone who wanted to work the land had land to work. This was his core belief, and on this point, he would not budge. Zapata ignored anyone who began sentences with, well, yes, but it's more complicated than that. Not long after Zapata assumed leadership in his village, the Mexican Revolution broke out. Exactly how and why are beyond the scope of this narrative. In short, a venal and corrupt president, Porfirio Diaz, who had maintained power for 31 years, lost control and saw his army defeated by rebel troops that included soldiers from Morelos under the command of Zapata. A new, more progressive leader stepped into the gap, promising democracy and justice, and Zapata, now recognized as one of the leaders of the rebellion, pressed him to agree to a major land redistribution program. 
The new leader balked, so Zapata pulled his support. He, Zapata, retreated with his advisors and drafted a reform agenda known as the Plan of Ayala. It called for, among other things, the breakup of the haciendas and the handover of land to those without it. Zapata also expanded his military efforts. Between 1911 and 1913, his forces seized a sizable territory in south-central Mexico. Within this territory, Zapata began to put the plan of Ayala into effect, delighting the villagers who found their farms enlarged and the haciendas shuttered. To them, Zapata was a hero, a savior. Up in Mexico City, coups succeeded coup. Opposition movements came together and broke apart. Many rebel leaders tried to ally with Zapata, the undisputed authority in the South. Zapata's sole condition was that his allies commit to the plan of Ayala. This was a hard sell, in part because some of the rebels were themselves hacendados. More critical was the fact that Zapata really only understood and really only cared about Morelos. Mexicans in the Yucatan Peninsula, or the northern desert states, lived under different conditions and had different problems. Miners in Chihuahua, for example, had their own issues, and the plan of Ayala didn't begin to address them. Nevertheless, in 1914, Zapata decided that one northern faction showed enough commitment to his plan to admit them as allies. This brought him into alliance with one of the other folk heroes of the revolution, the fierce fighter Pancho Villa. In 1915, Villa's troops from the north and Zapata's troops from the south converged on Mexico City, and the combined force seized the capital. Zapata could have claimed the presidency himself or formed some sort of power-sharing agreement with Villa. But Zapata wanted to get back to Morelos. He never wanted supreme power. Without a strong hand at the center, the Zapata-Villa alliance collapsed. In 1916, a new president seized power, regained the capital, and forced Zapata's troops to retreat. The new president also moved quickly to hold elections and promulgate a new constitution. This document incorporated the plan of Ayala, a clever move that took some of the wind out of Zapata's sails. The government can now say to Zapata's supporters, what are you fighting for? You got what you wanted. In any case, many Zapatistas were exhausted after years of war, tired of supporting an army that couldn't seem to win anymore, tired of burying their sons. The land under Zapata's control shrank to a small core in Morelos, and his soldiers slipped away. The Spanish flu swept through Morelos in the winter of 1918, and a quarter of the population died. Families couldn't feed their children. Zapata couldn't help them. He was out of resources and out of options. In April 1919, one of the president's colonels sent a note to Zapata asking if they could talk. He explained that he might be willing to change sides and ally with the Zapatistas. If true, this would be a game changer because the colonel would bring men, munitions, and money. Some of Zapata's followers warned it was a trap. But what was new? Zapata had lived in mortal danger for decades. On April 10th, Zapata joined the colonel for a meeting at the colonel's headquarters. Zapata arrived with 150 men and spent some time lingering outside of the gates, wary of attack within its walls. 
The colonel's men warned that some enemy troops were approaching from the hills, so some of Zapata's forces went to take a look. The colonel urged Zapata inside, where they would be safe and they could talk. Zapata agreed and walked through the gate into the courtyard at the front of the compound. A group of guards stood inside, presenting arms, a sign of respect. A bugle sounded three times, a call of honor. And then, as the last note fell silent, the guards opened fire. Emiliano Zapata fell dead in a hail of bullets. The colonel had been in pay of the president all along. Zapata's bloody body was carried on horseback through village after village and then put on display in a small town so the people of Morelos would understand their hero was really dead. Thousands came to view the body. A gruesome photo was taken of the corpse and ran in all of the newspapers. A year and a month later, another coup put another president into power, and this time many of Zapata's followers obtained key posts in the government. But land reform at the scale Zapata envisioned was never carried out. Zapata remains a hero in Mexico. In 1994, rebels in the southern state of Chiapas seized sizable territory and ejected government authorities. To this day, Zapatistas hold about half of Chiapas as a de facto autonomous state. I found it difficult to put Zapata into the big picture of 1919. His struggle had nothing to do with colonialism or communism, at least not exactly as they are usually understood. And it wasn't a matter of self-determination on any national scale. But that wasn't the scale at which Zapata operated. He had no interest in big abstract entities like states and nationalities. He was concerned only with the individual's right to self-determination and to justice. One more story from Latin America. I haven't talked much about South America in 1919, but it was not free from conflict. In January 1919, a series of riots and massacres shook Buenos Aires. The conflict originated as a cluster of labor disputes, including massive strikes that were inflamed by the actions of anarchists. Order broke down in the city and mobs rampaged through the streets. The government didn't know how to respond. At one point, members of the Argentine Congress started hurling their notebooks at one another. It took the combined efforts of two cavalry regiments, one marine regiment, and an artillery regiment to get the city under control. Estimates of those killed range from about 100 to more than 1,500. This series of events became known in Argentina as the Tragic Week. Argentina wasn't the only nation hit with labor unrest. We talked at length about what happened in the U.S. Other conflicts broke out in Scotland at the Battle of George Square on January 31st, when the British Army was called in to put down riots over working hours in Glasgow. In Canada, more than 30,000 strikers brought economic activity to a halt for six weeks in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The strike was eventually put down through violent action by the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, and many of its leaders wound up in prison. However, the Canadian labor movement ultimately emerged stronger and more united after the strike, in contrast to the U.S. labor movement, which was so demoralized after the failures of 1919 that it took more than a decade to truly recover. 
what else? In 1919, the U.S. military returned with new appreciation of the importance of motorized vehicles in war. Horses and mules had played a major role in the Great War, but it was obvious trucks and tanks were the future. The challenge with such vehicles is they require roads to travel on. Well, a tank can go wherever it wants, but it's going to get there a lot faster on a paved surface. What if, some officer said, staring at the map of the United States, we needed to get men and supplies from, say, Chicago to Los Angeles or Atlanta to Seattle? Could we do it? They had a suspicion the answer would be no, but they wanted to test it out. So on July 7th, 80 vehicles carrying 24 officers and 258 enlisted men set out from Washington, D.C. for San Francisco. The journey was endlessly frustrating, but I hope some of the troops could also see the humor in it. No lives were at stake. So the series of unfortunate events that followed could only have been laughed at. The vehicles were less than reliable. The first afternoon, one truck broke a coupling and a car broke a fan belt. More frustrating was that the road system had been designed for horses than buggies. On the second day of the journey, the convoy was delayed for two hours by wobbly bridges too dangerous for cars and covered bridges too low for trucks. The convoy averaged six miles an hour. Many of the drivers had little experience with internal combustion engines and routinely gave commands to the vehicles while driving them. This seems to have been common to drivers whose first experiences were with horses or mules. A great uncle of mine once burst through the back of the barn bellowing, whoa, with his foot firmly on the accelerator. The convoy traveled on paved roads until somewhere in Indiana, but gravel roads were still manageable until they reached western Nebraska. That was when the trucks started bogging down in sandy roads, often becoming stuck up to their hubcaps. One day, it took seven hours for the entire convoy to travel 200 yards. The further west, the worse it got. Utah was a disaster. In August, a delightfully cool time of year to cross the desert, the team was at one point so incapacitated they ran low on water and fuel. They had to be rescued by teams of horses. The convoy finally pulled into San Francisco on September 7th, having traveled 3,251 miles in 62 days. According to Google, you could do the same trip today in 42 hours on Interstate 80 the entire way. The directions literally have you get on the interstate in D.C. and exit 2,800 miles later at Market Street. Back in 1919, the convoy had proved its point. If an enemy invaded California, they would have weeks to wipe out local forces and dig in before anyone arrived from the east. I mean, assuming they knocked out rail travel. This is hypothetical. One official involved in the trip reported the officers of the convoy were thoroughly convinced that all transcontinental highways should be constructed and maintained by the federal government. And so, in 1921, Congress passed the Federal Aid Highway Act to develop a national highway system. But it was far too small of a product with far too small a budget for the job. America's roads would have to wait until 1956 and the creation of the interstate highway system 
to get a road network that really could move trucks and cars across the nation quickly and efficiently. The president who promoted that program was Dwight D. Eisenhower. He had been arguing for a national highway system for decades, since 1919, in fact, when he had joined the convoy on their long journey west. Just a few more things that I wanted to tell you. In 1919, Theodore Roosevelt died. So did the remarkable African-American entrepreneur Madame C.J. Walker and Impressionist artist Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Born blinking into the light of the sun were baseball player Jackie Robinson, singer Nat King Cole, mountaineer Sir Edmund Hillary, and science fiction writer Isaac Asimov. The highest-grossing movie of the year in the U.S. was Daddy Longlegs, a comedy starring Mary Pickford. The top-selling song was The Heartbreaker After You've Gone by Marion Harris. very first episode of this podcast, I asked a question. Was 1919 a time of hope or a time of despair? I pointed to two very different works of literature to make my point. One was the poem The Second Coming, written by W.B. Yeats in 1919. The other was the book Rilla of Ingleside by Ellen Montgomery, which was written a few years later, but covers the events of 1919. The poem certainly ends on a note of horror wondering what rough beast is now slouching toward Bethlehem. The novel ends on a note of possibility, with our heroine in the arms of her beloved. I said when I wrote that episode so long ago, I just checked, I started that draft in March 2019. Lord, how young we were then. Anyway, I said that the two works offered two different views of the future, and with which view would I agree when I was done? Well, here's what I think now. I think that was a stupid question. 1919 was a time of hope and optimism and possibility. At the exact same instant, it was a time of despair and certainty and loss. But wasn't it ever thus? Dickens was right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's always the best of times and the worst of times. The arc of the universe is long, so long we can't perceive which way it is bending without centuries of perspective. So let's just let that question go. I still find it amazing that it all happened in one year. I can flip through images like a kaleidoscope in my mind. Woodrow Wilson, who began the year with glorious purpose and ended it paralyzed in a dark room. The Czechoslovak Legion, stuck on a train in Siberia, desperate to return to a homeland that was now free. Iraqis cowering in the ruins as the British bombed their villages, and Armenians carrying their children fleeing genocide. I think of the suffragists standing vigil outside of the White House and J. Edgar Hoover poring over his index cards. The man who would come to be known as Ho Chi Minh borrowing a suit and delivering a petition to the American delegation at the Paris Peace Conference and waiting for a reply that would never come. The dirigible Wingfoot Express crashed in flames through the ceiling of a bank 
A wall of molasses flooded the streets of Boston. People in Ireland, in India, in Germany and Russia, China and Korea, New Zealand and South Africa, Morelos, Mexico, and Elaine, Arkansas, mourned their dead. I have two favorite images, both of them happy ones. One is William Monroe Trotter carefully tying up a rowboat and climbing a ladder at Le Havre. As he walked through the port, he shed his identity as a ship cook's assistant and resumed that of the Harvard-educated publisher and activist on his way to the Paris Peace Conference. But he did not forget to mail the letters the crew had entrusted to his care. And I think of Arthur Eddington. Not so much during the eclipse, although who can forget that, but later, working in the cool dark of the basement of the estate they had borrowed, alone, surrounded by crates and barrels, as he studied and measured the photographs he had taken of the stars. It was then that he realized he had verified Einstein's theory of relativity. He alone, in all the world, knew human understanding of the universe had changed forever. I want to thank everyone who has listened to this show, and especially those who have left ratings and reviews, told your friends, and sent me emails and Facebook messages and tweets. More than I can ever say, I want to thank those who have contributed. You leave me humbled. Most of all, to Maggie, Laura, and Roger, who continued to donate even after I went completely off the grid. My deepest thanks. You believed in me even when I didn't. And that brings us here. Y'all, it's been hard. Not the work, that's the fun part. It's everything else, and you must imagine me waving my arms widely, has been hard the last couple months. It's been hard for most of you. One thing I think we all appreciate now more than ever about 1919 is how much a global pandemic just takes out of you. I had always intended to wrap up 1919, pick a new year with your help, take a few months off to start research, and then dive back in. A week or so ago, I let the thought into my brain, what if I just didn't do that? And that's when I realized that I was done. I actually just now typed dumb instead of done. And if that isn't a Freudian slip. Am I done with the podcast forever? I have no idea. Probably not. I've loved it. But for now, I'm going to say in my terrible French accent, au revoir, and close up shop like a grown-up rather than simply ghost you all. I will keep the website up and the old episodes will remain out there, at least for a while. But I'm going to shut down the Patreon and the PayPal accounts. And when I figure out what I'm going to do next, I'll let you know. Thank you. Take care of yourselves. Send me a line sometime to say hello. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was.